Exodus 23, verse 20, up to the end of chapter 24. Hear the word of the Lord. Behold, I send an angel before you to guard you on the way and to bring you to the place that I have prepared. Pay careful attention to him and obey his voice. Do not rebel against him, for he will not pardon your transgression, for my name is in him. But if you carefully obey his voice and do all that I say, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. When my angel goes before you and brings you to the Amorites and the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Canaanites, the Hivites and the Jebusites, and I blot them out, you shall not bow down to their gods nor serve them, nor do as they do, but you shall utterly overthrow them and break their pillars in pieces. You shall serve the Lord your God, and he will bless your bread and your water, and I will take sickness away from among you. None shall miscarry or be barren in your land. I will fulfill the number of your days. I will send my terror before you, and I will throw into confusion all the people against whom you shall come, and I will make all your enemies turn their backs to you, and I will send hornets before you, which shall drive out the Hivites, the Canaanites, and the Hittites from before you. I will not drive them out from you before you in one year, lest the land become desolate and the wild beasts multiply against you. Little by little, I will drive them out from before you until you have increased and possessed the land. And I will set your border from the Red Sea to the Sea of the Philistines and from the wilderness to the Euphrates, for I will give the inhabitants of the land into your hand and you shall drive them out before you. You shall make no covenant with them and their gods. They shall not dwell in your land, lest they make you sin against me. For if you serve their gods, it will surely be a snare to you. Then he said to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, the seventy elders of Israel, and worship from afar. Moses alone shall come near to the Lord, but the others shall not come near, and the people shall not come up with him. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. And all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words that the Lord has spoken we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and twelve pillars according to the twelve tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins and half of the blood he threw against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken we will do and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and seventy of the elders of Israel went up, and they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone like the very heaven for clearness, and he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God and ate and drank. The Lord said to Moses, Come up to me on the mountain and wait there, that I may give you the tablets of stone with the law and the commandment which I have written for their instruction. So Moses rose with his assistant Joshua, and Moses went up into the mountain of God. And he said to the elders, Wait here until we return to you. And behold, Aaron and Hur are with you. Whoever has a dispute, let him go to them. Then Moses went up on the mountain. And the cloud covered the mountain. The glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain. And Moses was on the mountain forty days and forty nights. Let's pray. Now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts 
be acceptable in your sight, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Wise parents know how to use different types of speech with their children. Uh, Parents that sometimes drive their kids crazy only use one type of speech. Maybe they're always instructing, or they're always threatening, or they're always promising, or they're always warning. But wise parents know how to mix different types of speech with their children. Uh, Parents, while trying not to overcommit, we're constantly making promises to our children. I'll see you later when I get home. Um, I will take you to do this or that. I will do all I can to provide you the best education possible. I will try to be a, a good example to you. We make, we make promises to our children. We also warn them constantly. Now, when you get into this situation, beware, because they might say this to you, but, but be careful about this and that, and we warn them, because if you go this way or that way, these are the kind of negative things that can happen to you. We also, most delightfully, invite them to ourselves. Come, come and sit on my lap. Come sit next to me, and, and let's read a book hey, let's, uh, let's go get some, some lunch, or let's go get some dinner, or let's take a walk, or uh, let's, go, let's go play, or come and pray with me. We invite them to ourselves. And so we have, among the various parental types of speech, we have, we have the, uh, the warnings, and we also have the promises, and we have the invitations. Now, this is not a sermon about parenting. But it's interesting how in this section of Scripture we have God using three different types of speech with his people. He uses promises, he uses warnings, and finally, and most delightfully, he uses invitation for them to come to himself. In chapter 23, the verses 20 to 33, we have alternating. We have promise, warning, promise, warning. And then in chapter 24, we have invitation to come to him. First of all, he promised in verses 20 to 26 of chapter 23. He says, I promise I will send an angel. That's how it's translated here. The word means messenger. Sometimes it's what we think is a supernatural being. Sometimes it's a human messenger. But he says, I will send a messenger before you. And the messenger would guard them in the way and lead them, guide them into the land. Now, remember where we are in Exodus. They've come out of Egypt, but they're not yet in the promised land. And so he says, I will guide you with this messenger into the promised land. He will go before you. Now, if you go back to Exodus chapter 14, it refers to a messenger there. And that messenger in chapter 14 turns out to be that pillar about which we sang in one of these hymns. It was the pillar of cloud by day, fire by night that guided them. That was the messenger that went before them. But that doesn't quite fit here because if we keep on reading about this messenger, it doesn't seem to be an inanimate object, but rather very, very personal. He says in verse 20, I send a messenger before you to guard you on the way and to bring you to the place that I have prepared. That could be a cloud, but then he says, pay careful attention to him and obey his voice. Do not rebel against him, for he will not pardon your transgression, for my name is in him. Then he says, if you carefully obey his voice, the messenger's voice, and you do all that I say, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. Remembering the promise to Abraham, I will curse those who curse you. 
Verse 23, when my angel goes before you and brings you into the land of all these peoples and I blot them out. You see, there's something curious going on here with this this messenger, isn't there? Because God goes back and forth between referring to the messenger and to himself. When the messenger brings you into the land and I blot them out, listen to the voice of the messenger and hear what I have to say to you. So there's a curious thing happening with this messenger. He seems to be distinct from God, a messenger sent by God. And he's also identified with God. God says, my name, my personal revelation, my person, my being is in this messenger. Now, this is is a curious way of speaking, isn't it? And we find this ambiguity in in different parts of of the, the, the first books of the Bible about God's messenger. Sometimes he seems to be distinct from God. Sometimes he seems to be God himself. And of course, as we go on reading in the scripture and we get to the New Testament, we do find that God is in himself plural. He is a plurality of persons. It's not that distinct here how many persons, at least two in this, this text we have before us. But, but this, is a, this is an anticipation of, of that truth that we find more and more clearly through scripture, that, that God is one and God is plural, and that he sends himself when he sends his messenger. And this is the concept of the Trinity, that God is one and that God is three. That's the promise. I will send my messenger, that is myself, my name, before you. He will lead you into the land. Then there's a warning immediately after that promise. Promise, warning. Verse 24, you shall not bow down to their gods, nor serve them, nor do as they do, but you shall utterly overthrow them and break their pillars in pieces. Then he says, you shall serve the Lord your God, and he will bless your bread, and so on. Now, this should be familiar to us. We've heard the Ten Commandments, right? And the first commandment is, you shall have no other what? No other gods before me. And then the second commandment, you shall not make images, you shall not bow down to them. You shall have only one God, the living and true God. So this is just an application of the first commandment to the situation into which they were moving in a new land. They had come out of Egypt. Now they're in the desert. They're going into the land. There will be a multiplicity of gods in that land. And all those gods and all those people will be trying to draw the Israelites after themselves. And he says, be careful. I'm warning you about this situation that's coming up. Don't bow down to those gods. Serve the Lord only. And there is a, a, a series, there's a series of promises here that if they would serve the Lord, verse 25, there would be many physical blessings. And these physical blessings would have to do with life in the land, in the promised land. Uh, these blessings had to do with, with, uh, with food, with protection from sickness, uh, also protection from barrenness, uh, the ability to carry children and, and multiply in the land, to have long days in the land, all the things that the people would need in the land to settle themselves there and to prosper in the land. He says, if you serve me, that's what I will do. So this warning also turns into another promise. So another promise. And then he says in verse 27, he talks about sending. If you look at verse 20, he says, I will send, verse 20, I send an angel, verse 27, I send my terror, I send my terror. Now, this terror may be the same thing as the angel, but it's a different focus here, isn't it? I send my angel, he will guide you, he will introduce you into the land, listen to him. I send my terror, but it's not a terror to the Israelites, it's a terror to the inhabitants of the land. 
And he says this terror will drive these inhabitants of the land into a panic, into a panic. And they will turn their backs and they will run away from the Israelites as if running from a swarm of hornets. He will drive them out, this terror that God would send before the people. But then he says, I'm not going to drive them out all at once. This is, a, this is an interesting comment here, verse 29. I will not drive them out before you in one year. He says, lest the land become desolate and the wild beasts multiply against you. In, in modern terms, God says, if I do this too quickly, the ecosystem will get all messed up. The, the, the lands will, will be, be all messed up and, and the animals will get out of control. And so in order not to, not to mess that up for you, I'm going to drive them out uh, over a period of years. Now, in fact, in fact, it took centuries to finish the job. Um, there is a description of the, the, the borders uh, here in verse 31. Set your border from the Red Sea to the Sea of the Philistines, which would be the Mediterranean, the wilderness to the Rio, uh, the Rio, uh, the Rio, that's Spanish, uh, the river Euphrates. For I will give the inhabitants of the land into your hand, and you shall drive them out before you. So this, these are the borders that he was going to give them, and that that didn't happen until the reign of Solomon. So it wasn't just more than a year. It was, a, it was centuries later that they actually possessed all of the land that God had promised to them. That's the promise. I'll send my terror. But then he warned them. Another warning. Verses 32 and 33. You shall make no covenant with them. You shall make no pact, no agreement with them and their gods. They shall not dwell in your land, lest they make you sin against me. For if you serve their gods, I will surely, it will surely be a snare to you. So it's kind of repetitive, but he says, I will send the angel before you, and don't bow down to the gods there. I will send my terror before you, and don't make a pact, don't make a covenant with these people. And um, the idea was, if they made a covenant with these people, they would, they would be ensnared by their practices, because they would be in agreement with them. They would, be, they would be signing an agreement with them and signing on to them and to their gods. He says, don't do that. Don't make any agreements with them. Now, this idea of covenant or a pact between two parties is kind of the hinge here between these two chapters, because he says, don't make a covenant. And then in chapter 24, we have God doing what? Making a covenant. So he's don't make a covenant with them and their gods, but right now, I am going to make my covenant with you. So this is the hinge here. And so we get into this fascinating chapter 24 in which God did make his covenant. And interestingly, he begins it by expanding the invitation. If you've been following in this series, who has been able to go up on the mountain up to this point? Who? Moses. And there was a warning. People, don't even think about it. Don't even touch the mountain. Don't come near to the mountain. And the people were terrified. There was no chance they were going near that mountain. They were terrified because of the spectacle at the top of the mountain that Moses was having to encounter as he met with God. But notice that now the invitation. The invitation is, is expanded here, not universally, not universally, but representatively. He said to Moses, verse 1, Come up to the Lord, you, we get that, and Aaron, your brother, Nadab and Abihu, Aaron's two sons that were to inherit, as we'll see later, the priesthood after him, the 70 
elders or 70 of the elders of Israel. So the representatives of the people are to go up partway on the mountain, partway. They would worship from afar. They wouldn't go all the way up. Moses alone shall come near to the Lord, but the other shall not come near, but the, and the people shall not come up with him. So we have a three-tier system at this point. There is Moses, who's able to go all the way up and meet with the Lord. There's Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, 70 of the elders. They're able to go part of the way up. And then there are the people that are not allowed to come near. First, however, before this could happen, there's a ceremony here. And uh, the ceremony starts with Moses declaring all the words of the Lord and all the rules. Now, what are those? Well, what we saw a couple of weeks ago, chapters 20 to 23, those are all the laws, Ten Commandments, and all the rules. There were civil rules, there were ceremonial rules, there were moral rules, and so on. All of those he declared to them, and the people responded. And this is not the first time we've heard this from these people. And in verse, uh, verse Let's see, it's verse 3. And all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. Now, do you remember when Scotty preached on chapter 19? That's what the people said back then. But they were saying that in anticipation of hearing the Lord's words. They didn't know what it was, but they had this disposition, The Lord is good, whatever he says, we will do it. But they were ignorant of what God's words were. But now they weren't ignorant anymore. Now they had heard... The, the laws and the commandments and the rules of God. And even after hearing these, they said the same thing. They said, whatever the Lord says, all, that the, word, all the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And that's, that's the right response. Of course that's the right response. If God is God and we are his people, then that, that is the intuitively right response whenever we hear God's word. Whatever God says, I will do. That, that's the right response to hearing God's word. Now, we'll see how that develops, but just keep that in mind. Um, next, Moses wrote down these words. This is interesting in, in verses 4 to 7. He had, he had just given them orally. He'd spoken these words. And then it says in verse 4, Moses wrote down all these words. And this is a very early indication that, that Moses is an author. And that we have these books from Moses' hand because he's writing down these words that he got from the Lord. And then once again, after reading, uh, writing all these words down, he, they build an altar and they offer sacrifices on that altar. They send the young men to go do that. And then Moses takes the blood and he divides it in two and he takes half of the blood and he throws it against the altar. And then in verse 7, he took the book of the covenant. What book of the covenant? Well, the book that he just wrote down, which is chapters 20 to 23. And he read it in the hearing of the people. So now he's spoken it in the hearing of the people. And then he now, it's written down, he reads it in the hearing of the people. And then what do the people say? In verse 7, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient. And then Moses says this, it says, uh, in verse 8, it says, Moses took the blood and threw it on the people. He threw half of it on the altar, then he threw half of it on the people, and he said, Behold, the blood of the covenant 
that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. The blood of the covenant. That expression, it's the only place in the Old Testament where that expression occurs. So keep that, that, that expression in mind. The blood of the covenant. Now, unfortunately, this is not explained here, what this ceremony meant. Why taking the blood, dividing it in two, throwing half against the altar, throwing the other half on the people? But from earlier covenant ceremonies, one with Abraham, for example, and from later information we have about how blood and how altars and how sacrifices and how covenants work, we can, we can understand at least this. This blood obligated both parties. That's why it was thrown on both parties. The altar represented God and the people, of course, representing themselves. And so half of the blood was thrown, as it were, against God on him. And the other half was thrown on the people. Why? Because this was a a solemn covenant obligating both sides to keep the obligations, their parts of the covenant, upon pain of death. You see, this is a promise unto death by both sides. God saying, if I don't keep my side of the covenant, may my blood be spilled. And the people saying, if we don't keep our side of the covenant, may our blood be upon our own heads. Now, after that, and only after that, covenant ratification ceremony, the leaders were able to approach God. So that's, that's, the, that's the order. Covenant ratified with blood, access granted to the people. And they went up. They, they approached him because of the covenant. And we have some astounding words. And it says that they went up. Verse 8, it says, uh, verse 9, rather, Moses, Nadab, Abihu, Aaron, the 70 elders, they went up. And then verse 10 is shocking. It says, they saw the God of Israel. Now, in case you think, well, maybe that was a misprint. If you go to verse 11, at the end of it, it says, they beheld God. So it doubles down on this idea, which is shocking because elsewhere we read that nobody can see God. And God is a spirit. He's not, he's not visible. So, so we obviously have to take this in, in some metaphorical way because if God is, is invisible, if God is a spirit, he's not, he can't be seen with human perception. But, but even so, it's a shocking idea to say they saw God. They beheld God. Now, it immediately describes their vision. And notice their vision of God is not of God. It's of his footstool. That's as high as their vision could go. It says, verse 10, And they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. So what did they see? They saw the footstool of God. They saw the footstool of God, which was like heaven itself, indicating that that God, his footstool, is all of his creation. And... Yet, there was something problematic about even as much as they saw of God. Look at verse 11. It says, And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God, 
but he didn't destroy them. So even, even the text recognizes that there was, there was something problematic about this. Even the glimpse that they got of God could have been enough for him to lay his hand on them in judgment. But he didn't do that. He, he allowed them to get a glimpse of himself. And they were not destroyed by that vision. On the contrary, they had dinner. It says in verse 11, He did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God and ate and drank. They had a celebration. They had a party. The covenant opened the way for them to approach God, to get a glimpse of God and not be destroyed, but rather to celebrate a festival, a feast together before him. Now, the last part of this story is about Moses apparently going down and going up again. We have four or five different up, down, up, down, up, down, the mountain for poor Moses. And, and, and it looks like he goes down again, and then he goes back up again because the Lord said, come up to the mountain, wait there. He says, I'm going to give you the tablets of stone. We have the Ten Commandments, but they're not engraved on stone yet. And uh, he says, I'm going to give you this. And so Moses goes along with his assistant Joshua. We met Joshua in, in a battle against the Midianites. And it says, you two come up, and then they wait seven days, and Moses makes provision for his absence. In verse 14, he says to the elders, wait here uh, for us until we return to you. Behold, Aaron and Hur are with you. Whoever has a dispute, let him go to them. Now, what's he preparing for? It looks like he's preparing for a long absence. He's saying, okay, if there's any problem in my absence... I'm not here. My assistant is not here. Aaron's here. You got the elders. Aaron and her are here. So, so go to them if you have a problem. Preparing for a long absence. And then Moses goes up, waits for seven days. The glory of the Lord ascend, descends upon the top of the mountain. And notice it says it covered six days. And on the seventh day, he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Then it says, now the appearance of the glory of the Lord, verse 17, was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people. So put yourself in the sight of the people. Moses is going up, and what's it look like he's walking into? An active volcano that's erupting. The, the, the mountain looks like it's on fire, and Moses goes up into that, and the last thing he says is, if you have a problem, talk to these guys, indicating that he's going to be away for a while. And we find out here that Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. 40 days and 40 nights. Now that should ring a bell in our heads. During the flood, it rained for 40 days and 40 nights. Uh, The people wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. Jesus was in the the desert uh, fasting for for 40 days and 40 nights. It's 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 a repeated pattern here, but it's a long time. And as far as the people knew, where was Moses? He was up in this mushroom cloud of fire. He, he maybe had been devoured. And we will see later that they wondered what happened to him. And they started making provision for their, the rest of their journey without Moses. Now, the next chapters, a number of chapters, we have two things going on. We have what's going on in the mountain, what God is speaking to Moses. And then we have what's going on down on the ground with the people during those 40 days and 40 nights. So we'll leave the story right there, but I want to get back to these three ideas because these three ideas of promise, of warning, and of invitation, 
these ideas continue through the Bible, and they apply to us as well, and even greater ways than they applied in those days. Let's think about promise first. There are promises in the Bible that go way beyond what's promised here. What was promised here? Military victory, fruitful wives, enough food to eat, in a little piece of territory to the east of the Mediterranean Sea. That's what was promised here. Big promises, of course. But there are bigger promises throughout Scripture. And there are even greater promises that we have in the New Testament applied to those who are in Christ Jesus. Let me read you some promises. Try these on and see how these compare to the promises back in Exodus. Jesus said this, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. There's a promise. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. You will find rest for your souls. Another, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. If you love me, keep all my commands, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another counselor who will be with you forever. The thief comes to kill and steal and destroy. I have come that you may have life and have it to the full. I am the resurrection and the life. Anyone who believes in me will live even after dying. I am the vine, you are the branches. Those who remain in me and I in them will produce much fruit. Another promise. Teach these new disciples to obey all the commands I have given you and be sure of this, I am with you every day even to the end of the age. And then another one, do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My Father's house has many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I am going there to prepare a place for you? Does that sound familiar? What did he say to them? I will send my angel before you to do what? To prepare a place for you. And Jesus picks up those words and he says, I am going to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me so that you will be where I am. Promises that go way beyond, way beyond fruitful lives in the promised land. These are our promises if we are in Christ. And what do you do with a promise? Think about these categories. What do you do with a command? Well, you obey it or disobey it, right? What do you do with a promise? You can't obey it. What do you do? You either believe it or you don't believe it. And so here are the promises held out to us, but they're also warnings. The church is not a nation. The church does not have territorial boundaries. But we're still warned not to make covenants with unbelievers. We're not to enter into agreements with them that would compromise us. Paul said, do not be, in 2 Corinthians six fourteen. do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? What fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them. Touch no unclean thing, then I will welcome you. It's always a constant temptation, not only in the Old Testament, but also in the New, to, to make peace with the, the values around us, with the gods around us, to, to compromise with them. Oftentimes in, in, in our day, the idea is that, well, we need to modernize the Christian message so that it will be more palatable and acceptable to the people around us. And if we just will do that, 
then, then they will begin to listen to us. But every time the church goes down that road, they don't listen to us anymore because we become just like them. And we have sacrificed the only thing that the church really has to offer, God's word and the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so this, this warning is still there for us. We will be ensnared. We will be ensnared if we make a pact with the, the unbelieving thoughts and principles and, and value systems around us. And the final thing is this. God invites us to approach him. Their promises, their warnings. And God ab- invites us to approach him. And it's also through the blood of the covenant. But there's a huge shift in this idea of the blood of the covenant when we go from the Old Testament to the New. What was the blood of the covenant in that, that first ratification ceremony? It was an implied threat, wasn't it? It was an implied threat. If you don't do what you promise to do, if you don't keep your side of the covenant, you will die. Your blood will be shed. So the blood of the covenant was, was an implied threat to the people. But when we come to the New Testament, we find that the blood of the covenant is no longer a threat, but it is the way that we can approach God. Because, do you remember God pledged himself to death if he didn't fulfill the terms of the covenant and put the people under the same obligation? But what we find, the great surprise of the New Testament, is the God who kept all of his promises, who never failed, who always kept his side of the deal. He's the one whose son's blood was shed. And that, that blood of the covenant becomes our, our access to God in Hebrews chapter 9, verses 11 and following. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all in the holy places, not by the means of blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption, For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal covenant, the eternal spirit, offered himself without blemish to God, purify our consciences from dead works to serve the living and true God? Verse 22, it says that, Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And so what does that blood of the covenant become? No longer a threat, but the doorway, the access, so that we can come to God through the forgiveness of our sins. And that that expression, the blood of the covenant, appears only once in the whole Old Testament. But it appears in the New Testament in a very significant portion when Jesus is around a table with his disciples and he takes bread and he breaks it and he gives it to them and then he takes a cup And what does he say about that cup? This cup is the new covenant in my blood. And what does he say? It's poured out for what? Poured out so that if you don't obey, you will be condemned and you will die? No. He says poured out for the forgiveness of sins. That's what the blood of the covenant does. Now, when I read the Israelites' response to the law, I have two reactions to them. First of all, I want to cheer. They heard God's law read, and their intuitive and joyful response was this. Whatever the Lord says, we will do, and we will be obedient. And I want to applaud them. I want to stand up and cheer and say that's exactly what every believer should say whenever we hear God's word read and preached. That's the heart cry of the believer. Lord, I love your law. Whatever you say, 
I will do whatever it might be, whatever it might cost me. But at the same time, when I hear them, I also wince. Because I know the rest of their story. And we're going to read the rest of their story. But I know also the rest of our story. Because all of us have made solemn promises as well. Those of us who are married, we made solemn promises to our spouses. I will love you. I will take care of you. I will cherish you all the days of my life until death separates us. And then in the heat of the moment, oftentimes we don't live up to those promises. Those of us who have had our children baptized, we, we, have, we have stood before God's church and said, I will set before this child a godly example. I will pray with and for him. I will teach him all the doctrines of our holy faith. And then in the busyness of life, we forget those solemn vows. Or when we ourselves were admitted into fellowship into the church and became members, we made, we made solemn promises and wholehearted, joyful promises. And we said, I will live as is becoming of a follower of Jesus. I will treat the other brothers and sisters with, with purity and with peace. And I will strive with all of my, my means to, to prosper the work of the church and the glory of Christ. And then we get busy in life. And we forget the promises that we made. We also make everyday statements of intention. What we're going to do for somebody. I'll help you out there. And then, Oh, I'm sorry. Sorry, I forgot. Well, I'll, I'll be there. Oh, well, something else came up. And we don't fulfill the promises that we make. Now, there was a, a line that's a terrifying line. Back in chapter 23, verse 21. Pay careful attention to him, that is the messenger, the angel, and obey his voice. Do not rebel against him, for he will not pardon your transgression. He will not pardon your transgression, for my name is in him. So it looks like if that were the last word, the Israelites are without hope. But not only the Israelites, any of us who have made a promise and not kept it are without hope, if that's the final word. It says here, I will not pardon your transgression, for my name is in him. But thanks be to God, that's not the final word. And that's not the final messenger that God has sent. In sending the final messenger, he sent himself. He sent his son. And that son shed his own blood. His blood became the blood of the covenant. Poured out what? Not for the condemnation of sinners, but for the forgiveness of sins. And so we read in Hebrews that the blood of Jesus speaks better. Who has the last word? This word that was spoken here, I will not forgive their sins? No. The blood of Jesus has the last word for all who are believers in him. That his blood is sufficient to take away our sins. Now where does that leave us? Well, I hope that leaves us. I hope that leaves us where the Israelites were when they heard God's word, but even more so, even more so that that as we bask in the forgiveness of our sins and we hear God's word to us, that the cry of our heart be, oh, Lord, whatever you want me to do, I want to do that. Why? So that I can be okay with you? No, because the blood of the covenant was shed for me. And so whatever it might be, Lord, here am I. 
send me. Let's pray. Our God, we read about these Israelites and we are impressed with them, their desire to do exactly and everything that you said. And we've had those moments as well, Lord, when we've pledged ourselves to you and we've pledged ourselves to each other. But then we've fallen short. And we haven't done what you told us to do and we haven't even done what we said we would do. And so we come back to you and wonder, is there a way back? And we thank you for Jesus because the blood of the covenant opens that new and living way. We thank you that the blood of the covenant is no longer our condemnation, but our only hope of salvation. So cleanse us, O God. Cleanse us with the blood of the covenant, the blood that Jesus shed for us, so that we might be completely forgiven for our sins, and so that we might be renewed in that desire to do all that you tell us to do. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.